and uh, we are very pleased to welcome Professor Margaret Herridge from Toronto. This is a, a unique moment, half an hour, for asking many questions on patients, uh, family members in the ICU and after the ICU. Margaret, bonjour. Bonjour, Ali. It's a it's a, a real great pleasure, and uh, we have a lot of things we could spend two days to talk together on uh, what you do on a daily basis at the bedside and on your research. Uh, I'm just uh, reminding to uh, the delegates that uh, if there are any questions, you can go to the ESICM website and go on the on the, the web TV and uh, ask any question in the chat, and we will address uh, the questions. Um, so, Margaret, we, we have learned a lot from your works and work from other uh, colleagues uh, over, all over the world on what we should do when we deliver ICU care to a patient thinking on long-term outcomes. And in addition of that, uh, we have learned a lot on qualitative research in emotional things and psychological symptoms. But you provided us with works on qualitative things on physical symptoms. So can you maybe just tell us how this came to your to your to remind to develop this research program and to to provide us with all the things that you have done uh, for for the patients and the family members? Well, um, first, uh, Ellie, thanks uh, to you and the ESICM for the kind invitation this morning and uh, greetings from Toronto. Um, I have to say that um, maybe my decision to do outcomes work came um, from a place uh, after training where I wasn't really sure um, if I've made the right choice about my specialty because I had so much uncertainty about what happened to patients after we'd invested so much in the ICU. And of course, working in the ICU, there is so much mortality. And I was really um, concerned about um, what patients, who patients were after they left the ICU. So I think it was from a personal place to really want to understand that in more detail. And that was in the mid 90s. And I think um, there was certainly a, a burgeoning literature uh, beginning in this area at that time, which continued, well, which has continued over the last several decades, as we've discussed uh, many times uh, and with many colleagues engaged in this work. But I think that once uh, we started uh, looking at ARDS patients and we deliberately chose the ARDS patients because there was a pre-existing literature, but we selected for the most severely ill ARDS patients. Um, and again, deliberately understanding that we wanted to know what those outcomes looked like. And I don't think the intent of the program was to really characterize a lot of uh, multimorbidities and, and physical issues and you know, emotional and cognitive issues. Um, that wasn't how it began. I really began the study thinking it would be about pulmonary function um, and uh, um, sort of a, a pulmonary focus. But as we spent more and more time in clinic and spent a long time talking to people, listening to people, examining them, um, all of these other issues became very evident. And many other investigators around the world have found very similar things. And um, um, and just as we were doing this work, literature was emerging from 
Mona Hopkins group about the cognitive issues. Gustav Schelling in the late 90s um, was the first to describe PTSD. Um, more and more emerging literature on mood disorders, cognitive issues, and the varied multimorbidities um, that all of us who do this work now see very commonly and understanding an ever-expanding inventory of um, uh, the sequelae of uh, 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 being really sick in the ICU and naturally putting associations together with some of the ways we deliver care, those that are modifiable and those that may be non-modifiable. I believe it's very important for the, the youngest of the people who are listening to us, uh, either now or maybe later in replay, that people from, with your stature are paying attention to these very basic elements. Because when we look at the literature, we see that outcomes from different trials are either that the patients are alive or dead. And uh, you provide us with much more perspective on the long-term outcomes. And I think that the, the young generation need to have this in mind to, to be really certain that if this is their intention to work on that, there is a, a field of research uh, on outcomes that is much beyond being alive or dead, but it is much more qualitative. Mark, what would you say about these trials that have maybe missed the target by only focusing on mortality? Well, I mean, Ellie, I, I think that um, uh, if we're talking about, you know, recent trials, for example, in COVID, where there was a huge time sensitivity, I think it's very understandable that people are really going to target mortality um, <clears throat> as an initial uh, outcome, because obviously that's extremely important. But I think um, as we, um, but, I, but what I would say is it doesn't preclude studying morbidity, you know, because you can really design that as part of the study elements, you get to those major metrics of mortality, <clears throat> but then um, understand maybe in follow-up or detailed questionnaires or telephone interviews or Zoom. Now there's such a, a new opportunity with virtual follow-up that you can really um, design the study to fill in all those rich details of what the um, varied outcome signal might be from a given intervention or how that intervention interacts with the care that we deliver in ICU um, <clears throat> um, and, and generate new hypotheses from that. Um, and similarly, um, talking, you alluded to mixed methodology building in um, opportunities to interview patients, to interview families, um, to again add that extra granular detail um, to the study. So I think that um, I just wouldn't view them as mutually exclusive. I think they're all complementary elements of a very rich research program, even if the initial um, metric or the initial outcome is in uh, mortality. All of these other studies are doable. It's just um, the thoughtful design that goes into them and understanding that the mortality outcomes in isolation or even just you know an exercise outcome in isolation without understanding all of the domains of morbidity and how those domains interact 
in any given patient and understanding also how those domains of illness interact with the family and affect the family. And, you know, there's sort of a bi-directional uh, influence between family and caregiver and um, that the basic metric really probably needs to be the dyad or the, the patient family um, interaction. Thank you very much, Mark. Mark, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we have been flooded not only by the numbers, but also by reorganization, by having you know, many patients everywhere, including critically ill patients outside the ICU uh, uh, departments. Yeah. What can we expect? So we know that there is an ongoing research on the follow-up of COVID-19 survivors. What can we expect from this research? So do you have any data from your own research? And is there something that we can draw from the experience of the previous pandemics like MERS, like SARS, and other things that happened in the last three decades? Mm -hmm. Well, um, maybe I'll start with the MERS and SARS parallel, Ellie. Um, you know, I think sometimes for all of us, we don't we don't spend enough time looking back and actually being good students of historic literature um, and just replicating things for which there are already answers or very helpful directions to take. Um, the SARS uh, uh, epidemic um, or outbreak in Toronto and MERS, I think it really taught us that um, uh, we will see disability. We will see a very important mental health signal. Uh, we will see stigma. Um, and um, uh, we may see cognitive issues as well. So many of the domains that we already see in the emerging COVID-19 literature are already in the literature in SARS, so SARS-CoV-1, and in MERS, um, perhaps to a lesser extent, but the themes are robust. I think the emerging literature in COVID-19 is extremely instructive in terms of um, health policy issues, health utilization issues, and in the general um, a prolonged mechanical ventilation and chronic critical illness literature and ARDS and SARS. You put them all together and you see very robust overlapping themes of patients who um, spend a long time in the ICU. Um, they come in with a severe lung injury, and then they develop a host of problems related to being prolonged, uh, prolonged mechanical ventilation patients. And they acquire the chronicity complications and the iatrogenic complications that really transform them. Um, and after a few weeks, uh, place them into very different trajectories. And um, a very nice paper by uh, Mark Unruh and Chris Cox and it's a, a gorgeous figure shows how Byzantine the care transitions are after critical illness in these prolonged mechanically ventilated patients. And I think as we think about COVID-19, it's clear that um, around the world, um, COVID-19 has exposed a lot of um, uh, health inequity, um, exposed a lot of differential care for vulnerable patient populations. Um, and uh, we really need to be cognizant of challenging care transitions and really healthcare systems that um, are probably ill-equipped uh, or ill-prepared at the very least to deal with the um, tsunami of all of the disability that is really heading our way. Um, and um, uh, But again, 
um, less, lots of lessons to learn from in these uh, previous um, uh, areas of literature, ARDS, SARS, um, MERS, sepsis, chronic critical illness, um, and uh, the COVID-19 literature, Bin Cow's group in Wuhan has published the one-year data in Lancet, many similar, and, and there are all sorts of other cohorts that uh, will publish their one-year data coming up, and the themes are, are very robust. Here in Canada, in our CanCove study that um, I'm leading with my colleague Angela Chung, um, very similar themes. Um, a lot of stigma, problems with resilience, mental health, cognitive issues, functional disability, chronic lung disease, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think um, uh, lots to learn, but uh, from older literature and lots to learn now from new things that we discover from COVID-19. Thank you, Morgan. Mark, can we make a step back and uh, provide the perspective for, the, the again, the young generation? We are specialized in our university hospitals, in ECMO centers, in immunocompromised patients, in patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation. But overall, if we are taking the definition, the RDS definition, by having a low PF ratio below 300, and we look at the entire population, we still have very good outcomes. And, uh, and overall, survival is very high. And all the efforts that doctors, nurses, and all elite professionals, all these things that are made are very useful. But now we focus, we often focus on a group of patients. What do you think is the, the, the representation of this group as compared to the entire group of RDS patients? Is this 10%? Is this 25%? Sorry, Ali, I'm not quite sure I understand. You mean in... When we are reporting on outcomes after RDS uh, in multiple center study, we often involve centers on very specialized ICUs that don't have maybe a, a representative sample of mm -hmm. what is RDS overall. Oh, but mortality in RDS overall, uh, if we are looking at trials or at big cohorts, is certainly around 20 to 30%. So we have 70% survival. Yeah, for but sure. In, yeah, so the, all the efforts that are made are very useful. So what, what, do you, what would you say, should we provide a follow-up for everyone after the ICU? Or yes. should we maybe stratify on things that happen in the ICU, like the number of days of mechanical ventilation? Yeah, so um, thanks for that, Ellie. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, it's it's clear that yeah, and, and and maybe I can just also restate what you're saying that critical care has provided enormous um, uh, developments and and innovations in the last several decades, and we're absolutely saving people who historically would have died. There's no question about that, and I think you know when you tend to focus on morbidity. Um, in a research career, I would want to also be um, very uh, quick to state the enormous innovations that we've made. And that's really why we're able to study morbidity is because people are surviving. And I think maybe the, the big chapter two here is um, understanding that we, we save so many people, really turning our lens now to how we can minimize or mitigate disability. 
And that's an exciting prospect in terms of really fine tuning how to improve these outcomes in the longer term. To more specifically answer your question, there's no question that there are a lot of uh, risk groups who have clear vulnerabilities. And these are our older patients. Um, this isn't ageism. Um, there's a robust literature and it, it makes sense because senescence is the loss of biological reserve. That's normal aging. Um, our patients who come to us with a lot of multimorbidities, um, this is also um, a, a clear group to target. Um, patients who are on a, a declining health trajectory, these are also patients to um, target. And, you know, some uh, early work on, on trajectories um, from Jack Kawashina illustrates this. Um, Amber Barnado, um, um, uh, uh, Professor Guidé, many others looking in older patient populations clearly show the um, uh, these signals uh, that uh, there, there is in enhanced uh, vulnerability in their trajectories. In our own um, recover group, we looked at patients who are mechanically ventilated for a week or longer. Um, Terry Huff in the US is looking at a similar cohort of patients. And this um, arose from the chronically uh, critically ill patient uh, studies from Shannon Carson and others. It's clear that um, uh, after a week and probably even after three or four days, you have a sense in an ICU of who's going to stay for a long time with you and who's going to have challenges related to ICU acquired weakness or related to comorbid burden or related to age or pre-existing um, trajectories or other health issues. So I think um, increasingly how long you spend and some of these risk factors that I've mentioned in the ICU will enable us to target a smaller proportion of patients and their families who really um, uh, would benefit from a more structured uh, follow-up. Thank you very much, Mark. Mark, one thing that strikes me a lot when I look at the literature on emotional uh, uh, burden after uh, uh, critical care illness, uh, I'm very surprised to see that family members who did not per se, undergo mechanical ventilation and all the, the physical things in the ICU are still themselves with what is called the, the, the PICS, the, the post-ICU, uh, the post-intensive care syndrome. And uh, can you tell us more about uh, how these family members who are sometimes inpatients after RDS sicker than the, the patient themselves? And what are the data and should we also take care of them in addition to our patients? Huh? Well, Ellie, I, I think you're the expert on the caregiver question, not me, yeah. actually. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, and just uh, let me also, uh, you know, acknowledge uh, uh, Dr. Needham and uh, Davidson's work in terms of PICS and PICS family and how um, their construct, you know, brought together a lot of earlier constructs from the post-ARDS, uh, post-ARDS sepsis and uh, chronic critical illness literature. Um, I think it's true. Um, the families, uh, well, as you as you know, and 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 Nancy and so many others uh, um, who you've worked with, um, uh, Professor Poshar, many others. I mean. They have their own um, traumatic experience in the ICU, and it it does look different, but it's very damaging and 
can be quite durable. Um, I, I think it's still, um, we're still learning how, um, what the risk groups are for the caregivers in terms of uh, how severely um, ill they become. Um, there's no question that patients, uh, family caregivers with pre-existing mental health problems have vulnerability. Um, there's an emerging literature on uh, caregiver suicide, and um, uh, this is an important risk factor for that. But I think I would equally say and defer to you, Ellie, that you do not need to have pre-existing mental health problems um, as a family caregiver to develop pretty serious uh, mental health issues after critical illness. And um, we're certainly seeing that theme um, well, we've certainly seen that theme in the historic literature uh, led by you um, and uh, many others. Um, and that theme is very robust in the COVID-19 uh, patients, uh, uh, COVID-19 family caregivers as well. So again, echoing um, the COVID-19 outcomes literature in ICU patients anyway, echoing the historic uh, literature that, that um, you know, is very robust at this point. There's an interesting question on the chat on, so how can we select uh, those family members and with whom we need to develop uh, special communication programs to help them and to assist them? So you, you very nicely reported that uh, seven days of mechanical ventilation seems to be the, the threshold of time making the difference. Uh, so should we inform those family members of patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation or on ECMO on the different things to expect just to make them from the very beginning uh, uh, understand how we behave, what are, uh, how we make our decisions with them, how we can collaborate and, and maybe uh, uh, navigate uh, in, in the ICU for the, the days and weeks uh, that, are, that are going to, 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 to come. Yeah, well, you know, I, I would say that um, when I first started doing outcomes work and I talked to patients in the clinic and their families because they came together, um, I would try to give people a lot of information. And over the years, I had so much feedback from the patients and the families that um, they said to me it would be more helpful to ask people how much information they wanted to receive because they were then signaling that they were ready to maybe receive information that could be difficult or disturbing. Um, I would just share that with our CANCO study here in Canada, um, we have never had so few um, caregivers agree to be in the studies. Um, the caregivers are so traumatized um, and We've been recruiting from very sick case mixes here from COVID-19, a lot of ECLS patients, but we've never had so many caregivers decline. And the reasons to, that most of them have declined, some of them are sick, so that's one important reason, themselves with COVID, but the other issue is that they said they were absolutely and utterly overwhelmed. And I don't think that, um, and they were being physically separated through most of these waves from their loved one. Um, I think that, um, so I think it, it, it may be helpful to give information, but I think it's, it, we have to be cautious about overburdening with disturbing information that may or may not be um, the reality 
for that particular person. Um, I think it runs the the uh, it, it presents a possibility that it can further overwhelm people. I think um, understanding that um, the patients and the families are at high risk when they spend more time with us, um, although not exclusively, um, <clears throat> and being aware of it, um, ensuring the communication is excellent, is truthful, um, and to be honest about uncertainty. Uh, this is another thing I heard so much in the clinic, that the patients and the families want to hear uncertainty when it's the truth and don't want to receive sort of I don't know, pat or stereotypic answers, or you know, uh, they they know genuine communication when they hear it, and they understand complexity, and they understand uncertainty, and um, want to hear that. So I think it's important to have a high suspicion that people may need mental health uh, resources, and the longer they stay, the greater the likelihood of that. I think. But I would also just want a message to the audience that I got that feedback from the patients and families to be very careful about overburdening people with too much information that may not necessarily affect them, um, but that in the moment might um, add um, another increment of stress. Thank you very much, Morgan. We, we still have a, a few minutes, uh, and I would like to, to spend a little bit of time on the RECOVER program. I think that one of the things that would be very different in the recover as compared to other programs that are also wonderful is the importance of the interprofessional team and the way where everyone has a role, not only in caring, but also in research by working with translational research, by physiotherapy, by respiratory therapy. So everyone has a role. So we are a chain. Can you tell us more about how you did, you did build this team and how this translated into the importance of your works in your recovery and in other works that you perform on outcomes? Um, thanks, Ellie. I, I guess I would say that um, so many people are doing work in this area. So. Um, we started doing work in with our recover program in about 2006 or so, kind of on the heels of our arts and SARS work and um, based a lot on the learnings from that. But there's so many networks and people who are doing this work now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I could name 10 people, you know, I mean, there's so many important networks now, you know, the Thrive Network, there are important networks in the UK. Uh, Tim Walsh's group has done their own UK recover program. Um, Inspire is an important program. I mean, there are many international programs in Australia as well. Carol Hodgson, her PT colleagues there, Linda Dennehy, lots of people are doing this important work here in Canada, Michelle Co too. Um, so I just want to say that, you know, I mean, we're now one of many, many groups, which is actually really fantastic. Um, I think that um, it was kind of organic for our group that I thought the ICU follow-up should follow the same structure as the acute ICU. It just seemed to make sense. And the rehab models for other diseases tend to follow that model. There was nothing really novel or innovative about that particularly. Um, I think it may, what uh, we were trying to do in recovery that may have been slightly different was to take the navigator model from the oncology literature 
to create someone who really follows the patient and family um, as a as to help them literally navigate the care transitions these these difficult care transitions that we've talked about before. I think that was a newer element that we tried to bring in. But again, we were borrowing from other groups who had success with complex patients. Um, and I think that um, um, what we were really trying to do was <clears throat> create that continuum of care, that continuum of rehab, but also provide an educational focus so that, you know, the um, all the clinicians, you know, all of the clinicians who are part of the interprofessional team could learn from uh, the patient and the caregiver um, through the care transitions and in follow-up clinic um, and the trainees too. Uh, so, and because when you do follow up, it transforms your um, clinical practice in the ICU. You see things differently. You see them through the lens of hopefully modifiable uh, disabilities or modifiable um, mood disorders or cognitive issues or pressure injuries or all of these sorts of things. Um, and I think it really is important that our trainees understand the continuum of care and the continuum of rehabilitation and um, are able to learn how difficult these care transitions are uh, for patients, for families, um, uh, how they really have nowhere to turn. Uh, often the clinic and other programs, and I know other colleagues who do this work find the same, um, you know, you become um, the place that the families and the patients return to for advocacy, for access to care, um, because the system may not naturally work so efficiently for them. Their primary care physician may not truly understand the constellation of multimorbidities and, um, you know, your, your perspective, your lens is quite different. And you can really be a very, very effective patient and family advocate. I would say here in Toronto, in Canada, I think probably like lots of parts of the world, it's hard to access mental health resources. And so this is actually our number one referral is to mental health. Thank you very much, Morgan. I think that we have uh, spent these uh, 30 minutes together, and I'm sure that uh, most of people who are looking at us uh, hope for much more, and uh, ESICM is providing much more in uh, weekly and sometimes daily webinars. In the, you can see that again in replay, and we will have many opportunities in the close future and face-to-face uh, -face meetings also in 2022. And Mark, I'm, I'm, I, we really spent a good time talking to you, learning from your research and from your perspective. Uh, and uh, if you want to say goodbye to everyone, uh, so I'm giving you the, <laughs> the podium for the, the last seconds. Thank you. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks for the opportunity to chat today. Thanks to ESICM for the kind uh, opportunity to speak today. Thank Take you care. and goodbye. Have a good day. Okay, bye-bye.